supposedly administering treatment, but in fact sexually victimizing these girls. And look this man in the eye and hold him accountable for what he did. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Cases, special worst case scenario. I'm your host, Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor, and I am in Atlanta today recording from the East Coast office. I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Jim Clementi from Los Angeles, California. And it may be wonderful out here. The weather's great, but I'm a little under the weather, so um Hopefully, I won't go into a coughing fit in the middle of this, but I have a lot to say about this particular topic. Jim, I suspect we both have a lot to say about this particular topic, and if you have to cough, you go right ahead, and I'm sure our listeners know I can talk uh, no matter what. So today, I'm really excited to bring you another worst-case scenario where Jim and I discuss current events in the news, things that are making an impact uh, in the world. And right now, I think the news, aside from politics, is full of the USA Gymnastics Larry Nasser sentencing case. Jim, have you been following that as closely as I have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is lighting up all the social networking sites that uh, I've been seeing. And for a lot of reasons, um, many of them good, some of them bad. Um, but I think if we start with the recent history, the sentencing of Larry Nassar, I think this was a case that, well, few of us have seen in our entire 30-year-plus law enforcement careers. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's um, it's a hopefully an outlier, although you and I both know that those with a persistent sexual interest in children can, over the terms of their lives, have dozens or even hundreds, as is the case with this sicko Nasser, of victims. And I thought we could start with where the case has ended. And that is just this week, the judge, uh, Judge Aquilina in Michigan, sentenced Larry Nasser to 40 to 175 years. Jim, what do you think of that? Well, I think obviously it was a statement that needed to be made um, that 
the fact that this medical doctor, somebody charged with actually caring for our children and young athletes in both the USA Gymnastics Arena and in Michigan State, that he took advantage of his position of authority, his position of trust, and he did some incredibly horrific things, damaging things to children and young women over the course of decades. Well, he did. And Jim, I almost feel like I have a little bit of a unique perspective on this case in a small sense, in that I was a highly competitive gymnast as a child and competed at a very high level. In fact, I uh, was a Georgia State Gymnastics champion when I was 12. I won the all-around championship in my age group. And so I was very competitive in gymnastics and I had some great coaches. And I remember very specifically being a little bit uncomfortable, not that anything bad ever happened to me, but just it is a fact in gymnastics that when you're being coached, you have to be spotted, what's called being spotted. And that is some coach or spotter's hands are all over you when they're helping you learn how to do new moves. And as a 10, 11, 12-year-old girl, it's a little uncomfortable for a man to put his hands on your chest, on your stomach, on your upper thighs as he's guiding you through moves, even when there's nothing inappropriate about it, as was in my case it still can make you feel uncomfortable. So I can almost imagine what it was like for these incredible athletes, these very strong women and girls to be subjected to abuse while they're undergoing what is supposed to be medical treatment to help them achieve what some of them did, which was Olympic gold. And I've been listening to some of their statements this week in the sentencing hearing and have just been so moved and felt so emotional when they talk about how initially they just didn't even understand what was happening to them. They're in for medical treatment. They're required to go. Some of them even told their parents, the way the doctor touches me makes me feel uncomfortable. I think something's wrong. Some of them said, he's not using gloves and he's putting his hands inside me. And their parents to their dismay now, their parents said, oh, I'm sure you're mistaken. There can't be anything wrong. And I think, Jim, that's one of the lessons, one of the big lessons of this case that hopefully everyone in the country, parents and children, young adults are learning, is that when someone, whether they're in a trusted position or not, touches you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, you have an absolute right to tell someone about it and make it stop. Right. But the problem is that they did tell people and those people, because they were groomed, because Dr. Nasa had such a high profile, exalted position as a pillar of the community, because he explained away all these sexually victimizing behaviors that he was doing, committing crimes against these kids and against these young ladies, because of all that. They didn't believe the victims. They didn't believe that he was actually doing something wrong. And that is ultimately the worst part of this. We have to understand. We have to learn more. We have to educate ourselves and we have to educate our children and our young adults that this is an issue. 
that there are people who will take advantage of the situation. And they pretend to be nice people and they pretend to be doing what's right. And they pretend to be your friend and your compatriot and your leader and your coach and your, uh, your doctor. And yet they take advantage of that situation. So since you brought up the sentencing, Judge Aquilina sentenced Larry Nasser to 40 to 175 years. Quite a sentence. And that's, of course, on top of the 60-year sentence he just got recently in federal court for child pornography charges. And by the way, in that case, there were coaches and other people at Michigan State and USA Gymnastics who were claiming that Nasser was set up with those child pornography images, that he wasn't actually an offender. Again, they literally could not believe because he had taken them in so well. He had groomed not only the victims, but their parents and the community for so long. They absolutely believed that he was a good guy and he was incapable of doing bad things to children, especially sexual bad things. Well, Jim, and it's so disheartening because as you and I both know and have both fought in our career, these uh, ideas that people have that, oh, I know him or her, she's a mom, he's a dad, he's a coach, he's a doctor, he's a pillar of the community. If he was some kind of sick sex offender, certainly I would know it. It's almost like I, I tell this and I say this in training all the time to law enforcement, parents and charities, you may have a predator in the room next door. Just because you think they're a nice guy doesn't mean they are. And yet we're here. We're here again, Jim. It's it's Penn State, it's Sandusky all over again, where you have a high-level offender who's sophisticated, good at their job. And so people believe somehow that just because of that, they can't possibly be some kind of child sex offender. We know that's not true. Right. And on top of that, they're both nice guys. And it's the nice guy of it. It's the spending time and effort and energy on helping kids. It's it's being, you know, in the community and raising funds for charities and and actually being, you know, a wonderful part of this amazing process that is, you know, youth or child athletics or, you know, actually on the world stage with USA Gymnastics. These things ingratiate these offenders into the lives of their victims and their victims' families and their communities. And again, people literally do not believe. And you mentioned Penn State. And the Penn State comparison is a good one in one respect, in that, yes, Jerry Sandusky was a nice guy, pillar of the community, acquaintance offender. And he was incredibly effective with his grooming techniques, not only with the children that he victimized, but with the people who were responsible for them, whether they were in Second Mile or families and the community in general. But I caution people to not focus on the football program and blame that and, and somebody trying to protect that program because literally not only were there thousands of people who were fooled by Jerry Sandusky, thousands of people in in the community, in in the football realm, in 
in the athletic uh, sort of star realm in, in terms of, you know, people who donated to his charity, but in the charity itself, the entire community was fooled by him. And the fact is, you, you know damn well, even if there was some kind of deliberate cover-up, which I do not believe there existed in that case, and I certainly see the results of the, of the trials where those charges were absolutely dismissed. But the fact is that the grooming that Jerry Sandusky was able to do towards the victims and the guardians of the children he offended against and the community in general made those people literally believe in their minds that he was not a bad person. And they thought only a bad person could be doing these things. Not a nice guy, pillar of the community, successful assistant coach. And I think the same exact thing happened with Nasser. That is, for decades, he had been helping athletes, fixing their broken bodies, getting them to top shape, advising them and and giving them therapy. And for many, many, many years, he'd been successful at this. And because of that, I think he got bolder and bolder. And parents would be in the room when he was actually supposedly administering treatment, but in fact, sexually victimizing these girls. And the fact that they were there, some people think that's outrageous, but I've been involved in other cases. And one that I've quoted in my report on, on the Sandusky case was Richard Taus. And he was an FBI agent who used his position. And he was a Vietnam war veteran, a pilot who was lauded for actually adopting a boy who lost his parents in Vietnam and bringing him back to the United States and raising this boy. Well, I believe there is strong evidence that he actually was sexually victimizing that boy, as he did to literally hundreds of other boys that were in the soccer program in Long Island, New York, that he had started and he was administering. And again, he used his position as an FBI agent to groom the community and groom the boys who he was victimizing. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Well, it is, Jim. And one of the things I want to get to in just a second is I want to hear your thoughts on the attitude and the sentencing hearing itself as presided over by this Michigan judge. But before we get there, I think it's so important for our listeners. I tell schools, charities, law enforcement, that children are their own first best defense against this kind of conduct. But when children do have the courage to speak out, it is incumbent upon leaders, parents, coaches, leaders, mentors, to take action. They are in no position to simply say, I don't believe you because I know this person. That's when the police should be called. That's when the FBI should be called. That's when the professionals who understand this behavior absolutely must get involved to conduct a fair and impartial investigation. And what you have here is exactly what you described. You have USA Gymnastics taking allegations, not very many, but some, from these athletes about coaches and about this doctor and ignoring them because, like you said, they themselves had been groomed and just could not credit that these allegations could be true. And that has led us to the point where Larry Nasser was able to access 
hundreds of young women and girls and sexually victimize them in a way that has profoundly impacted their lives. Right. And I just want to say, though, it has profoundly affected their lives. But the fact that they were able to come forward is a very heroic act. And even those victims out there who haven't come forward, that's not a problem. He's being punished for what he did. He can no longer sexually victimize anybody else. And that's a wonderful thing. But no, just because you were a victim does not mean that your life is ruined, does not mean that you can't go on and have a wonderful life. Talk to somebody. If you have issues, go to a therapist. There are plenty of resources out there for people who are victimized. And you can go on to live a happy, healthy life. Just deal with this. It's something that happened to you. And it's not who you are. It doesn't define you as as a person, but it's something that you have survived. And the fact that you survived means that you can go on to thrive. And I encourage you all to do that. Well, I just find these women who came forward in this sentencing hearing, Allie Raceman, uh, who's a personal hero of mine. Uh, She's been a multiple gold medal winner. Uh, Simone Biles, who has spoken out very recently and is an all-around gold medal winner, and all of the about 160 women who the judge allowed to come in and give what's generally referred to as victim impact testimony in the sentencing of Nasser, absolutely have my most incredible thoughts, feelings, prayers, and admiration. Most of all, admiration, because what they did took incredible guts. It's very difficult for those who've been sexually victimized to come forward and say it. They have a sense of shame. Many times they get blamed themselves, as happened to some of these young women when they first disclosed. They were told, oh, you're mistaken. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And these were by respected people or even their parents. So for them to then be able to overcome that and to stand in public, put their face in public and look this man in the eye and hold him accountable for what he did is nothing short of heroic. And Jim, I'm one of those people that think we throw the word bravery and hero around too much in society when it comes to decisions that really aren't that brave or that heroic. This was absolute courage in the face of something horrific that most people will never understand or experience. And so I give kudos to the judge for she didn't actually have to let all of these women come in and give impact testimony because he was technically pled guilty to victimizing seven young women. But she let them come in, and I credit her for that. I think, particularly in face of Nasser's letter that he sent to the judge, basically telling her he didn't want to have to sit through. 160 victim impact statements uh, and and just showing this totally narcissistic, totally self-concerned attitude. How did his lawyer let him do that? I mean, that's so outrageous. Obviously, that's not going to be looked at very well by the judge. And obviously, it shows a lack of remorse. And you know what else does, Francie? What's that? I very carefully listened to his statement right before the judge sentenced him, and I knew there was going to be an indicator there, and sure enough, there was. Two words. Two words that tell me absolutely this sentence was justified. 
And that was where he said he kept turning around and saying, you know, all the things that you told me, all the things that happened to you. You know, he kept turning around to the victims who were in the audience. And the judge said, you have to face the court and the microphone or otherwise nobody can hear you. And so he faced back and he says, I can't even say, I mean, words can't even express how sorry I am for what happened. Yeah. What happened? What happened? The passive tense. He did not take responsibility. That tells me everything. That he is lying about being sorry, that he has no remorse at all, and that he is just the slimiest slime bag in slimedom. And I am so glad that he has been stopped. But I want to tell everyone who's listening, to tell everyone they know, that there are still thousands and thousands more like him offending against children and young people across this country right now in youth serving organizations, places that that are target rich environments for these types of offenders. They attract them. Not everybody who works there is like that. Certainly just a small, tiny fraction of the people who actually dedicate their lives to helping children. So it's very difficult for us to suss out who are the ones that are there because they're sexually attracted to kids and who are the ones that are there because they actually want to help children. But guess what? The ones who are sexually attracted to kids also want to help children. They rationalize in their minds that they're not hurting kids. They're expressing love. They're doing things that are good for them. They're not seeing the vile acts that they're committing against these children as crimes or as bad things at all. So you really have to drill down deeper. You have to look at their behavior. You have to find out why certain of these individuals spend all their time around young people or children that don't have balancing adult relationships, that seem to never tire of being around children. I like to say that if Somebody wants to spend more time with your kids than you can stand spending with your kids. That's a major red flag. You have to pay attention to this. You absolutely do. And I call it, Jim, when I talk to groups, I call it the virtues of vigilance because we have to be, as a society, as a community, absolutely vigilant against people like Nasser. And I agree with you that he showed absolutely no remorse in the sentencing hearing, and in fact, in the letter that he sent to the judge that she made public, he blamed these women. He said that some of them were seeking publicity or money. He never took responsibility for what he did. He absolutely merited what our listeners know I like to call a pine box sentence because he's coming out of prison in a pine box. So that's deserved. There's no doubt. But what I want to talk about too, Jim, is while I really appreciate what the judge did in allowing these women to have their voices, to to be heard, to confront the man who victimized them and to take that power back and to feel like there was something that they did that makes them responsible now for his punishment, which I think is an important part of that healing process that they're all going to be going through, including the ones who didn't come forward.
I want to talk a little bit about the judge. I was very distressed to see her talk so much about herself, um, which I think was inappropriate. She talked a lot about how smart she is and how much she did her homework on the case. And I felt like it went a little bit into grandstanding, but really I might be okay with all of that. What I'm concerned about though, are the things that she said that I worry are going to mean his sentence is actually going to be reversed. It's going to be sent back after an appeal because she said things like, well, I know the eighth amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And now I'm paraphrasing Jim, but if you could be raped in prison, like you sexually assaulted these women, I'd be okay with that. Listen, I I consider myself to be a bit vengeful. And we dropped an episode of my worst case where I felt a bit like an avenging angel in it, but I was the prosecutor. That's my job to seek justice and even vengeance, because that's part of the criminal justice system. That's part of one of the theories of criminal justice, punishment, vengeance for what has been done to someone else. But that is not the role of the judge. And to talk about it in that way, that she's so gleeful and she's, quote, signing his death warrant, which, Jim, I know we've debated this topic, but she did not sign his death warrant. We have such a thing as death warrants in this country, and that wasn't a death warrant. She, there is, it's unlikely, but it's possible he could get out of prison someday if he's ill, compassionate leave, pardons. I hope none of that happens. But she absolutely did not sign his death warrant. What I'm worried, though, is that she put herself and even said she was advocating for the victim. She wanted to be their voice. She is taking herself right out of neutral arbiter, which is a central pillar of our criminal justice system and makes us the best system in the world and puts herself in the role of advocate. And I worry that an appellate court is going to look at that and send it back. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. But I will say, Francie, I think she was just doing exactly what you say uh, about the pine box sentence. I think she was just using a different euphemism for that, saying it was a death warrant. But I do think that and I fear that what she has said, all this sort of like you called it grandstanding and commentary actually strayed far beyond what, what a judge should do in a sentencing And I think that because of that, his defense attorneys are going to have just a field day in terms of grist for the mill of appeals. They will have plenty of things that she said that they can file an appeal on. And I think they might be successful. Yeah, I'm worried you're right. I think that it's it's unfortunate because, you know, I mean, as a practical matter, he's under a 60 year federal sentence for child pornography. So he's not going anywhere. And frankly, that 60-year federal sentence is truth in sentencing. There's no parole in the federal system. So he's not getting out uh, unless he lives to be 100, which I suspect he will not. But So he's not getting out. So her sentence in that sense is a little bit irrelevant uh, from a real crime and punishment sense. But from an accountability sense, he victimized women. That sentence in Michigan was for the actual victimization of these young women and girls. And for that reason, I want that sentence to stick. It's a good, hard penalty. He deserves 40 to 175 years. I don't dispute that at all. And like I said, I really admire the way she conducted the hearing in allowing all these women to come forward and give victim impact testimony. But 
her own uh, judgment, I think, became impaired. She put herself on the victim's side, which morally I totally get. I understand her motivation. You know, she's in an international forum. She's getting a ton of attention. It's live coverage on every channel of the sentencing. So I understand her wanting to be in the role of I'm on the side of the victims, but that is not her job. In fact, her job is not to be on anyone's side. Her job is to be on the side of justice. And that means neutrality. And that means weighing pros and cons and arriving at a sentence that is merited by the evidence in aggravation and mitigation. And I'm just worried she didn't do that. Yeah. Well, I agree. And I guess time will tell. Um, But I'd like to get back to sort of the Michigan state of this. And the fact is that Larry Nassar sexually victimized a number of Michigan state athletes. And Some of them came forward, and some of them were chastised by coaches, by administrators. Again, I don't know if this was a deliberate act. I have not done the research on this case. But if there were deliberate acts in knowing that Larry Nassar was victimizing these women and still they discouraged them from going forward or threatened them against going forward— That's obviously not only a heinous act, but probably a criminal act. But that is a wholly different inquiry than recognizing the behavioral aspects of grooming and compliant victimization that we find in nice guy, nice gal, pillar of the community offenders. These people are intertwined in the lives of their victims They don't just randomly pick somebody. They take time and they groom them and they make them, they put them in a situation where the victims feel shame and guilt and responsibility. And those who do come forward are many times not believed because the people that are offending are so, quote, nice and good and wonderful and helpful. Well, people out there, you need to wake up and understand that offenders use those things to to mask what they're doing. They're doing they're getting into these situations so that they can get access to kids, access and authority over kids so they can groom them into sexual victimization. And what grooming does is it keeps the victims quiet. It convinces people around the victims that the offenders are not really offenders and it allows them to go on offending year after year after year. So we have to do more than just sit back and wait for kids to come forward, though. What we need to do is have conversations with children. Let them know that the most common danger by far to them sexually is from people they know and trust and even love. That these people, even though they port to be wonderful people doing good things, that they harbor a sexual interest in children, and they're actually working with kids because they want to get access, authority, and control over them. So please talk to your children. Let them know that this is a danger. Let them know that they can talk to you about things like sex and sexual victimization. Because if you don't have a dialogue back and forth with your children, you're setting them up to be victimized. You're setting them up so that they won't come forward and tell you if something bad happens. 
And if you're not even aware that these kinds of offenders exist, and I say nice guy, nice gal offenders, because there are many females who put themselves in teaching and coaching positions so they can get access to children for sex. And it's just as bad. It's just as damaging. It's just as illegal as when a male offender does it. Those are great points, Jim. And as I've said, children are their first best defense against sexual victimization. But parents, teachers, the community, we all have to do a better job of understanding the dynamics of nice guy, gal, acquaintance offenders. And that's where I hope that Michigan State and USA Gymnastics and the United States Olympic Committee are going to launch a thorough professional investigation of what has happened here. I feel fairly confident there there are law enforcement authorities looking at the issue now. But on the civil side, on the domestic side, I think that these organizations need to take a hard look at what happened, what policies were in place, what policies were not in place, how did this happen? And if there was criminal activity where people are literally covering up these crimes, those people need to be held criminally accountable. And I just want to say, Jim, as we close this worst case scenario, my final thoughts are with the organization and the young woman who I think are responsible for bringing Nasser to justice. And first, that was the Indianapolis Star who wrote an expose a couple of years ago about USA Gymnastics and allegations that they were putting complaints about coaches sexually victimizing athletes into file folders and burying them somewhere, which encouraged Rachel Denhalander, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing her name, a gymnast, to come forward to talk about Larry Nassar. And that began the investigation, and it is because of her and the Indianapolis Star that Nasser has gotten a pine box sentence. And I want to thank them for their courage in bringing it to light and for her courage in speaking out when no one else would. Well, I want to echo your thanks to them and call them heroes, and I really hope that people around the country and around the world, for that matter, see them as heroes and follow suit. I also want to say that there has been a call by the judge to have a massive investigation into what's going on and what went on at USA Gymnastics and Michigan State. And I do believe both of those entities should be investigating deeply what's been going on, what has been the pattern and practices of those entities, and obviously put in better practices. Safeforathletes.org, that's safe, the number four, athletes.org, has great policies and sample contracts and lists of rules for any youth-serving organization. They're free. You can download them. You can adapt them to whatever your organization is. I would definitely recommend that. And I would be happy, and I'm sure, Francie, you'd be happy, too, to join in and train anybody who is embarking on these investigations so that they know in great detail exactly how these offenders operate 
everything they can about grooming, everything they can about compliant victimization, and everything they can about nice guy, nice gal, acquaintance, pillar of the community, offenders. Because if you don't go into these types of investigations knowing exactly how they operate, you're never going to suss out the behavior. You're never going to know how to stop it. And I hope that together we can all prevent these kinds of things from happening again. I hope so too, Jim. Those are great tips. Uh, I'm happy to join in uh, and train. Uh, I even said on Twitter recently that if they're going to do an investigation, they should contact professionals like us with, not necessarily us, but like us with our background and training and not hire, all due respect, some law firm who's on their payroll, uh, who has a bias, a built-in bias, and they'll try to do a good job, but I really think they need outside experts, and I hope that's what they do. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, thank you, Jim, for this discussion of worst-case scenario on the USA Gymnastics Michigan State. Ultimately, though, Larry Nasser victimization of a bunch of young women and girls and their ultimate triumph over him. I think the other thing that this case is an amazing example of is that victims naturally outnumber offenders because offenders have multiple victims. And if the victims join forces, their voices are louder and more powerful than the offenders. And by joining forces, just like in the Me Too campaign, we can actually create change, change that will help prevent further victimization. Well said, Jim. And everyone, thank you again for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. This was Worst Case Scenario. For now, we're signing off. Thanks for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba and hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's D, the number two, L, dot org.